Chapter 4 Tools for Praise and Appreciation Not all odes are equal. Ways to praise that will help, not hinder. Julie You've heard the chapter title, and I know what you're thinking. Really? Does everything have to be complicated? Sure, we all need help with children who scream and hit and run away in parking lots. But praise? Sorry to say, praise can be complicated. Research and observation suggest that it's not a matter of how much praise we dole out, but the way we praise that makes the difference. Consider these scenarios. 1. You're an elementary school teacher. After a tough morning with a group of wild, quarrelsome, unfocused kids, there's a momentary lull. When your supervisor walks in, the kids are quietly listening to a story. The supervisor says, You are the best instructor here. You have excellent control of your class. What is your reaction to this praise? Are you glowing with pride of achievement? Or are you focusing on your weaknesses? Are you kidding me? I couldn't control an elderly basset hound on a hot summer day. I just got lucky. I don't know if I should even be in this profession. Two, you don't have any formal musical training, but you've always liked to sing in the shower. You decide to take it on to dry land and join a choir. After the first few sessions, you're still struggling. The harmonies are difficult, and you can tell that much of the time you're not singing the right note. You say to the choir director, I don't know if I should keep on with this. I'm just not getting it. He replies, Don't worry, you're doing fine. You sound really good out there. Would that praise help you feel more confident? Or would you wonder, is he mistaken or is he lying? Maybe he just didn't hear me because he was listening more to the Sopranos. Maybe he's trying to make me feel better. Or maybe he just needs my membership fee for his next car payment. 3. You spent weeks working on a proposal for a new reading program at your child's school. You send it to the director and wait eagerly for his response. The next day, you get an email saying, Great job. Thanks. Are you elated that the director admired your groundbreaking ideas? Or are you wondering if he really liked it? Did he notice all the thought you put into your presentation? The way you backed up your ideas with the latest research and solved the problem of funding? Or is he just checking off his to-do list, clear email inbox, before he goes home for the weekend? 4. You enjoy basketball. It's a fun way to get a workout, but you're only a fair player. You're shooting baskets at the gym, and just as you finally sink one, some guy you don't know walks in and says, Nice! You have a perfect jump shot. What's your reaction? Do you want to play a pickup game with this guy? Or are you more likely to hurry home before you dispel the good impression with a series of bungled shots? What are we trying to accomplish when we offer our children praise? Most people say something like, we're trying to make them aware of their own strengths. Or, we want to encourage them to do more of the same. Or, we want them to feel confident or try even harder. It seems only natural that if we're trying to boost self-esteem, 
we'll tell our children frequently and enthusiastically, you're great, smart, wonderful, beautiful, the best. But when we use words that evaluate, we often achieve the opposite effect. As you probably noticed when listening to the scenarios above, praise that judges or evaluates can create problems. It can make us focus on our weaknesses rather than our strengths. I'm not really that great. You should have seen me ten minutes ago. It can make us doubt the sincerity of the person offering the praise. Does he really mean it? Or is he just trying to make me feel good? What does he want from me? It can feel dismissive. Did he even look at all that work I did? Maybe it wasn't worth the effort. It can make us feel threatened. What if I can't do it again? It can even cause us to give up completely, to stop what we're doing and walk away. I observed this phenomenon at a music festival a few years ago. A group of jugglers were encouraging the public to try out the tools of their trade. I noticed a young boy who was more persistent than most of the adults around him, managing to keep several beanbags in the air at the same time. Hey, look at that kid, I said to my husband. He's really good. The boy looked up at me with a startled expression, put down the beanbags, and walked away. What happened? Why did spontaneous praise from a bystander cause him to stop? This boy was deeply engrossed in the process of learning something new and challenging. Suddenly, he is being judged. Now, instead of focusing on the task at hand, he has to worry that he may fumble the next throw and have this bystander judge him as inadequate. Better to quit while you're ahead. What a miserable thing I did to this poor kid. The first rule of praise is that it's not always appropriate to praise. When a child is engaged in an activity, there is no need to disturb her concentration by looming over her and offering unsolicited comments. Give her space. Think about how you would feel if you were cooking dinner with your partner sitting a few feet away saying, nice technique slicing those onions. Good choice of cooking oil. The carrots are very evenly diced. You're displaying a very effective grip on that can opener. How many minutes could you put up with that before screaming, leave me alone? But what about those times when kids do want a reaction? They run up to us, sticking their crayon drawings under our noses, saying, look, do you like it? What kind of response will inspire rather than discourage? Tool number one. Describe what you see. A more useful way to praise is to resist the impulse to evaluate and instead to simply describe what you see or hear or notice with any of your five senses. Instead of, that's a beautiful picture, try, I see green lines that are zooming up and down the page and look how they connect all these red shapes. Instead of, good job, Try, I see you picked up all the cars and all the books, and you even picked up the dirty socks. I see bare floor. That was a big job. Instead of, excellent work, try, I see you circled every single picture that begins with the letter B. Instead of, 
Good job following directions. Try... You found your spot in the circle as soon as you heard circle time. Instead of nice try, try... That ball reached the fifth row of tiles on the wall. It's getting closer to the basket almost every time. Or, if you're not in the mood for a lot of words, you can simply say, You did it! All of these statements let a child know that you noticed and appreciated something he did, without evaluation or judgment, which could discourage him from further efforts. Sarah's Story Fishtail There's a little girl at preschool who's always showing me her drawings. Teacher, teacher, look! I say, very nice, that's beautiful. Then she drops it on the floor and walks away. It's pretty much scribbles, so there's not much else to say. This time, I said, I see wiggly lines on the top and lots of blue on the bottom. It reminds me of the wind and sea. She looked very intently at her own picture and pointed to a tiny squarish scribble that I hadn't noticed. Do you see that? That is a little tiny fish. She went back to the craft table to draw more tiny fish. It seemed that my looking at the picture closely made her appreciate it more herself and want to work harder on it. Very important point. Consider asking questions or starting a conversation instead of praising. Oh, look what you made. Tell me about this. How did you get the idea to do this? How did you make this? Show me how this works. This makes me think about outer space. What does it make you think about? I wonder what you're going to make next. Michael's Story A Boy's Best Friend I tried starting a conversation, and I almost got more than I bargained for. Jamie showed me one of his animal drawings. Instead of the usual, very nice, I said, oh, look at this. It makes me think of how much you like dogs. Yeah, this is the dog I'm going to have when I'm five years old. It'll have brown fur, and I'm going to teach it to sleep in my bed. And his name will be Slinky Dog. And he'll go to school with me every day. He went on describing his day with his dog and all the things he would teach it to make his bed and feed it half of his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I never knew he had such elaborate plans. I'm hoping he forgets about this by the time he turns five. Tool number two. Describe the effect on others. We all want our kids to be good citizens. We'd like to encourage their efforts to help others. But we need to beware the temptation to judge their character. Stick with description. Instead of, you're a good girl, you can say, you carried those grocery bags all the way to the kitchen. That was a big help. Instead of, you're the best big brother, you can say, the baby loves it when you make those funny sounds. I see a big smile on her face. Instead of, you're such a thoughtful little girl, you can say, you helped Johnny zip up his coat. 
Now he'll be nice and warm when he goes outside. Instead of, good boy, I knew you could be nice to the kitty if you tried, you can say, I hear Sparky purring. She likes that gentle petting. Michael's story. Go get her. My two-year-old Kara was asking for blueberries. I was ignoring her because I was trying to finish a work email. Finally, my four-year-old Jamie dragged a stool over to the refrigerator and got her blueberries. I said, wow, Jamie, you just made two people happy. You made Kara happy because she got her blueberries, and you made me happy because I got to finish my work. All week, Jamie's been jumping up to get things for me and his sister. He's usually very demanding. Get me this, get me that. And I'm always trying to encourage him to ask politely. Now he's the getter. Sarah's story. Praise rephrase. I used to believe girls were easy because my oldest has always been exceptionally cooperative. But lately, my three-year-old, Mia, has been doing everything she can to annoy or defy me. When we have to go somewhere, she squeezes behind the back seat of the van and refuses to climb into her car seat, making the whole family late. When we have to get out of the car, she bolts into the parking lot. She breaks her siblings' crayons, yells when my sister's baby is sleeping, even shoves big kids in the playground. If it's known as bad, you name it, she does it. I've really tried hard not to put her in the role of the bad child. As a matter of fact, I was making a big effort to tell her what a good girl she is. The funny thing is, it seemed to make it even worse. At dinner, I was telling my husband what a good girl she was at story hour at the library, and Mia said, No, I wasn't good. I knocked the books down on the floor. I was loud. She was angry and pouting all evening. It's like she wanted to remind us that her sister is the good girl and she's the bad one. After our session on praise, I switched tactics. I told my husband how Mia helped me at the library by carrying all the heavy books down the stairs and checking them out by herself. Mia smiled from ear to ear. You could see how proud she was. She stuck out her chest and said, I did do that, and I held the door for the stroller, too. When I described what she did, she praised herself. I have to admit, Mia has not been magically transformed from a tiger to a pussycat, but this new way of praising is changing the way she sees herself. Tool number three, describe effort. A researcher at Stanford University, Carol Dweck, formally studied the effects of evaluative praise on children. She was interested in exploring the phenomenon of bright children who do very well in elementary school and then seem to lose confidence and stop trying by the time they reach middle school, despite repeated reassurance that they are smart, gifted, talented, exceptional. She designed a study in which two groups of children were given a sheet of math questions to solve. When the task was completed, 
the first group was given evaluative praise. Wow, that's a really good score. You must be smart at this. The message is clear. You are a bright child, talented at math. The second group was also told that they had done well. But they were not labeled or evaluated. Instead, their process was described with appreciation. Wow, that's a really good score. You must have worked really hard. A different kind of message. You stuck with it. You kept trying until you figured out all the problems. Now, the two groups were asked if they would like to try an even more challenging set of math questions. Guess who said yes and who said no? If you guessed that the first group said no, give yourself some praise. When a child has done well and been told that she's gifted and talented, why would she risk her status by trying something more difficult? She might fail. It may turn out she's not gifted after all. She's just ordinary. The children in the second group, whose efforts had been described, were enthusiastic about taking on a more challenging task. Both groups were then given a new sheet of math questions. But this time, the first group, the children who had been showered with evaluative praise, did worse. Their confidence was shot. In contrast, the children whose efforts were appreciated did better. It's no surprise that children who are told they are smart and talented often fall apart when they encounter their first real challenges. When things are easy for them, their label is confirmed. They are the best and the brightest. But when they find themselves struggling, as eventually they will, their faith in themselves is shaken. Maybe I'm not so smart after all. Better to stick to the safety zone and not reveal weakness. As you can see, praise is indeed powerful. Used the wrong way, it can deter children from activities and behaviors that we mean to encourage. Maybe all of that overpraising of children is really just the wrong kind of praise. Here's how it sounds when you praise effort instead of evaluating the child. Instead of, what a smart boy you are, you can say, you kept working on that puzzle until you figured it out. Instead of, you're very talented at gymnastics, you can say, I saw you climbing onto that balance beam again and again until you walked the whole beam without falling off. Instead of, good job dressing yourself, try, you kept working on that button until you got it into that little buttonhole. Sarah's story. Ready or not. Every spring, I'm required to give my five-year-olds a screening test. The children are supposed to fill out a 20-page packet of written activities to assess their readiness for kindergarten, from shape recognition to math puzzles to cutting and tracing. In all the years I've done this, I've never been able to get more than a few kids to complete the whole packet in spite of my best effort to give positive feedback. Nice job. You're doing great. Keep up the good work. Just do your best. This year, I used what I learned in our session on praise. Instead of evaluating, I described their effort. 
I see how hard you're working. You've been concentrating hard for a long time. Looks like you're really using a lot of brain power to figure this out. I thought it would help a little, but I was amazed that not a single child gave up. Even when recess came, several insisted on continuing until they completed the packet. Tool number four, describe progress. One advantage of descriptive praise is that you can use it even when things aren't going particularly well by pointing out what has been achieved so far. When a child is making a mess or struggling with a task, it's tempting to point out what she's doing wrong. After all, won't that help her improve? The problem is, criticism in the midst of a struggle can be discouraging. On the other hand, inauthentic praise, don't worry, you're doing fine, can be infuriating. No, I am not doing fine. With descriptive praise, we can point out progress in a way that feels supportive and genuine. Often pointing out one positive thing is more effective than pointing out ten negatives. Instead of pointing out what's wrong, this handwriting is so sloppy it's almost impossible to read, honey. It looks like a chicken with muddy feet walked across your paper. You need to at least try to get the letters on the line. You'll have a more motivated child if you point out what's right. Look at this letter B. It's a real beauty contest winner. It sits so politely on the line. It's not busting through the floor and bothering the downstairs neighbors. It's not flying up in the air and banging on the ceiling. Look at the big spaces between these four words. This part is very clear and easy to read. Sometimes we do need to point out what's wrong. Kids don't always notice on their own. In a case like this, it's important to appreciate the positive first. If you want a criticism to be accepted graciously, a good rule to follow is to notice three positive things before mentioning the negative. And even then, it's most useful to put your criticism in positive terms. Talk about what needs to be done rather than what is still wrong. Instead of criticizing an unfinished task, are you kidding me? You think you're finished? This room isn't even close to being clean. There are blocks all over the floor and your desk is under a pile of trash. You'll be more likely to inspire a child to finish cleaning if you notice what he has accomplished so far. I can see you got your dirty clothes in the laundry basket, you hung up your wet towel, and there's a clear path from the door to the bed. Now all this room needs to be ready for company is for the blocks to be tossed into their box and the dirty tissues on the desk to be thrown in the garbage can. Instead of focusing on the mistakes, I can see you haven't been practicing. You're playing a lot of wrong notes and your rhythm is wrong too. Quarter notes aren't the same as half notes. You'll give a child the confidence to tackle the hard parts if you start by focusing on what he's accomplished so far. Those first two measures make me want to dance. I get a lively feeling when I hear the staccato notes. I can imagine a little frog jumping. The second line has a tricky rhythm. Let's work on that next. Tony's story. DIY disaster.
Grandma was visiting and brought a kit to make a gingerbread house. It should have been a lovely opportunity for the generations to bond. Unfortunately, the icing was stiff and the gingerbread was crumbly. Thomas was getting frustrated. Grandma tried to encourage him. Thomas, that's really good. Thomas was red-faced and angry. No, it's not. The blue was all smooshed on the side and the edge broke off. I could see it coming. He was about to stomp off and my mother was going to be very disappointed that her gift didn't work out. I knew what to say. Thomas, I see you got half of the window done even though the icing is so stiff. Thomas sighed. Yeah, I'm getting the other half now. Whew. Good save, right? Anna's story. Beginning reader. Anton sounded out his first few words and actually read a sentence. I was very excited and about to say, you are a great reader. But I caught myself and came up with, you sounded out each of the letters and you put them together. You read a whole sentence. Anton grinned. Let's do another one. Are you getting the idea that description is more genuine than the old style of praise? We don't have to be inauthentic and tell a child he is wonderful and his work is great in order to inflate his ego. We can give him specific descriptive feedback that is realistic and helpful. Very important point. Sometimes acknowledging feelings can be more helpful than praise. Sometimes a kid is not happy with the results of his labor. His picture of a bicycle doesn't look like a bicycle. Our impulse is to offer encouraging words. No, it's really good, honey. It does look like a bicycle. You did such a nice job. This kind of response often produces rage and wailing. No, it doesn't. I hate it. But we don't want to show a lack of faith in his ability either. Oh, dear, a bicycle is too hard to draw. Why don't you just draw a ball for the letter B? Your teacher will be happy, and all you have to make is a circle. You can do that. Time to switch gears and acknowledge feelings. When kids are unhappy, we don't have to prop them up with frantic praise. It's more helpful to say, Ugh, you are not happy with the way that bicycle came out. It doesn't look like what you see in your head. It's not easy to draw a bike. It's hard to put something from real life onto a flat piece of paper and get it to look right. Your child may respond with renewed efforts to draw that infernal two-wheeler. Or he may decide on his own to draw a ball instead. Either way, your emotional support helped him through his moment of frustration, and he can think more clearly. Another situation in which our impulse is to offer reassuring words of praise is when a child compares himself to his peers and finds himself lacking. Everybody can climb the monkey bars except me. I can't even get across two. I'm the worst in the whole class. Ethan and Jason can already read chapter books. I'm the slowest one at reading. Our instinct is to jump in with words of praise to bolster our child's flagging self-esteem. Oh no, honey, you're really good at climbing. 
You're a really good reader. You're doing an excellent job. I'm sure there are lots of kids who aren't as good as you are. This kind of response usually does not achieve the intended effect. Kids will protest even more vehemently that they are indeed the worst, the slowest. When a child is feeling down, it's more helpful to acknowledge feelings first, instead of offering empty reassurance. It's frustrating to see other kids get across all the monkey bars when you can't do it yet. It sounds like you're feeling discouraged about reading. It's annoying to be stuck with a picture book when you want to be reading chapter books. If you think the mood is right, you can try giving wishes in fantasy. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just eat three magic raisins and zip across the whole playground hand over hand without getting tired, read a thick chapter book and know all the words? But that's not the end of the conversation. When a child is feeling low, you'll want to give him a picture of himself that inspires him to strive. Very important point. Give a child a new picture of himself. It's time to tell your child a story about himself. And this is a story only you can tell. You know your kid like no other. I'm pretty sure that if you want to master those monkey bars, you will get there. When you want to do something, you are a pretty determined kid. I remember when you were just five months old, too young to crawl, but you wanted to get to that dog bowl. You kept trying and trying. I had to go to the bathroom, and I thought it would be okay to leave you alone for just a minute. But when I got back, there you were, munching on Rover's dog kibble. You made it all the way across the kitchen on your own. Nothing was safe from you. It's weird. Each person is different. Some kids, like Ethan, learn to read chapter books before kindergarten, but they can't ride a two-wheeler yet. And some kids, like you, learn to ride a bike without training wheels when they're only three, and they're still working on reading a chapter book. Some kids learn reading faster, and some kids learn riding faster, but they all learn to read and they all learn to ride. I've seen you sounding out words and reading sentences, so I know you're learning. And I've seen Ethan working on balancing on his bike, so I know he's learning. I just hope you don't start reading while riding. <laughs> that could cause a big crash. Another way to give a child a new picture of himself is to give him opportunities to demonstrate his competence. Rashi, can you help me with this key? It's sticking in the lock again. Asher, I have to put away groceries, and Shiriel needs someone to read the Things That Go book to her. Can you do it? She likes hearing it read by her big brother. You may find yourself needing help a whole lot in the near future, with opening jar lids, filling juice glasses, finding your glasses, tightening screws, buckling the baby into the car seat, feeding the animals, arranging dessert on a plate, handing out art supplies, collecting papers, shutting doors, and turning off lights. Don't forget to enlist your competent child or student to give you a hand. And then be sure to appreciate the help with descriptive praise. Maria had her hand up in the air. 
How about telling your child, I'm proud of you? Isn't that one more way of making a child feel good about himself? Here's my reservation about that statement. When a parent or teacher says, I'm proud of you, she's taking credit herself for the child's accomplishment. When she describes what the child has achieved, the child gets the credit. When in doubt, credit the child. Instead of, you're riding without training wheels, I'm so proud of you. You can say, you did it. You figured out how to balance on your bike without training wheels. You must be pretty pleased with yourself. Very important point. Resist the urge to praise by comparison. It can be tempting to parents of more than one child to praise by comparison. We fall into the trap of trying to boost the ego of the big boy at the expense of the baby. It seems like a harmless ploy. After all, the baby can't understand what we're saying. You got your shoes on by yourself. Your little brother can't do that. He's just a baby. You're such a neat eater. The baby makes a big mess. Sometimes we want to give a little boost by comparing a child favorably to his peers. You can already ride a two-wheeler. None of your friends can do that. You're the best reader in the class. Not many five-year-olds can read a chapter book. So what's wrong with that? Proud parents and teachers, happy kids, right? The problem is, we don't want a child to feel that our pride in his success comes at the expense of others' failures. We don't want him to feel threatened by the accomplishments of his rapidly growing sibling or the triumphs of his classmates. Instead, you can stick with describing his actions, his efforts, his progress, and his effect on others. You got your shoes on by yourself. I guess I know who will be teaching the baby to tie his shoes when he gets a little bigger. Now he can see himself as a teacher of his little brother instead of as a rival. Thanks for putting the dishes in the sink. I like having a cleanup partner. You did it. You figured out how to get that bike to balance without training wheels. That is tricky. You finished the whole book. Did you like that funny part where Frog and Toad hid the cookies? In desperate times, you need to be a praise ninja. In this story, Michael uses every tool in the chapter and some other chapters besides. Michael's story. Preschooler on Ice. Jamie was very excited about our first trip to the skating rink. In the car on the way over, he told me he knew he'd be good at it. He was so confident, he was setting himself up for a fall, literally. He started off wobbly, falling every 10 seconds, and by midway around the rink, he declared he'd never skate again and he wanted off. I was glad I had my tools. First, I acknowledged his feelings. It's frustrating to learn something new, especially balancing your body on something so slippery. It's not easy. In fact, it's really tough. It doesn't feel good to fall down on hard ice. I didn't argue when he wanted to take a break. I didn't push him to stick with it. I suggested that we get a snack to get our strength up before giving it another try. After our snack, he was not quite convinced to go back out, 
so I asked if he'd be willing to try with me again after three minutes or five minutes. A choice. He agreed to three minutes. When we got back out, I gave him descriptive praise, telling him I could see that he was using his arms to balance himself and pointing out how much farther he'd gone from our last round. When he got frustrated, I showed him how to take it out on the ice by stomping along, doing angry skating. We made it three or four more times around, and at the very end, he let go of my hand and made it back to the gate all by himself without falling. There were so many moments where it was getting bad and it could have been a disaster, but all of the elements we've been talking about in the workshop helped me to keep him in the game. He was so proud of his improvement, it melted my heart. If you still have doubts about praise that evaluates versus praise that describes, try it on yourself. Here's the scenario. Your partner arrives home from work to find that you've cleaned up the kitchen, gotten the kids bathed and PJ'd, and prepared a hot meal for the family. Using the language we so often apply to our kids, your partner says enthusiastically, Wow, you are such a good spouse. What a perfect marriage I have. Great job, honey. I'm proud of you. Did you feel patronized? Did you feel a little offended by the assumption that you wished to be judged? Did you wonder, so what, if I'm tired and order pizza, does that make me a bad spouse? Did you think, I'd better not bring expectations up like this again? Did you wonder why your partner is proud when you're the one who did the work? Okay. New scene. Your partner comes home to the same setup and says, Wow, you got the kids ready for bed and you took care of that big mess we left in the kitchen this morning and you made dinner for us all right after work. Sit down, honey. Let me get you a drink. Now you might think, Hey, it was worth the effort. My partner appreciates what I do around here. Maybe I'll even do it again sometime. By praising descriptively, by looking, listening, and noticing, we hold up a mirror to our children to show them their strengths. That's how children form their image of themselves. These are more than nice individual moments. We're creating a stockpile of memories that cannot be taken away. Good boy can be canceled out the next day by bad boy. You're a smart girl by what a stupid thing to do. Careful by careless, and so on. But you can't take away the time he shoveled the whole walkway even though his arms were tired and his toes were frozen. Or the time he made the baby laugh with his goofy faces when the babysitter couldn't get her to stop crying, or found his mom's reading glasses, or figured out how to make the alarm on the cell phone stop going off when no one else could do it. These are the things he can draw upon to give himself confidence in the face of adversity and discouragement. In the past, he did something he was proud of, and he has within himself the power to do it again. Reminder. Tools for praise and appreciation. 1. Describe what you see. I see green lines that are zooming up and down the page. And look how they connect all these red shapes. Two, describe the effect on others. The baby loves it when you make those funny sounds. 
I see a big smile on her face. 3. Describe effort. You kept working on that button until you got it into that little buttonhole. 4. Describe progress. You sounded out each of the letters and you put them together. You read a whole sentence. Very important points. Consider asking questions or starting a conversation instead of praising. Sometimes, acknowledging feelings can be more helpful than praise. Give a child a new picture of himself. Resist the urge to praise by comparison. Chapter 5. Tools for Kids Who Are Differently Wired Will this work with my kid? Modifications for Kids with Autism and Sensory Issues Julie This chapter is for those of you who are thinking, This all sounds very nice, but you haven't met my kid. This will never work with him. Some of you have children who are particularly sensitive, rambunctious, or strong-willed. Others have children who have been diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder or sensory processing disorder. Many of these children have outsized reactions to ordinary, everyday experiences. The ticking of a clock, fluorescent lights, socks with seams, getting bumped by another kid. Others are under-responsive, like the child who seems not to feel pain. Sometimes they talk too loudly, hug other children too tightly, or seem not to have any interest in interacting with people at all. They might insist on talking about only one subject, train schedules or maps. They might fall apart if their rigid routines aren't followed precisely. Many have great difficulty with transitions and cannot bear to be rushed from one activity to another. Much as we try to minimize their distress, we cannot create a world that is comfortable for them. If you don't have a child who is wired differently, you might be tempted to skip this chapter entirely. But if you have a spare moment, you may discover that the tools in this chapter help with some of the challenges that are still lingering after you've gone through the earlier chapters. I used to read about what to expect after my first baby was born. The books reassured me that babies vary in how quickly they develop. So I didn't worry that the other babies in my mother's group were crawling and standing when all Asher could do was sit. At his one-year checkup, Asher's pediatrician asked me if I was concerned about his progress. I remember telling the doctor that if he wasn't worried, I wasn't either. Two months later, the pediatrician suggested I see a specialist and I was told my baby was very developmentally delayed. By then, I noticed the disparity. The other babies in our group had turned into toddlers, toppling over Asher as they staggered around the room, while Asher shrank from them in fear because he could only do a slow sit-scoot. I still remember the offense I took when another mother suggested I was being overprotective of my son, as if it were somehow my fault that he was not yet mobile. Beneath my anger was the fear that she might be right. And it wasn't just his physical development that was different. I started to notice that his sensory system was different, too. As a baby, Asher couldn't tolerate having his feet touched, and he resisted being held in a standing position. 
This obviously did not bode well for learning to walk, which would require that he touch his feet to the floor. In his physical therapy sessions, I learned a brushing technique to desensitize him to being touched. I was supposed to brush his arms, legs, and back every two waking hours. It added to my guilt that I found this schedule impossible to keep. When my second baby, Rashi, looked different too, I told myself it was no big deal. I can handle this. I didn't bother reviewing the What to Expect books and took him directly to the child development specialists. I thought it'd be easier to navigate the emotional roller coaster the second time around, but I found myself in unfamiliar, scary territory again. Rashi was unlike Asher in many ways. Asher had been a floppy baby, but Rashi was stiff. Asher cried when his legs or feet were touched. Rashi didn't even cry when he got a vaccination in his thigh. If we took Asher somewhere with lots of new sights, sounds, and people, he would get wound up and cry. Rashi would just shut down and fall asleep wherever he was. For a while, I was scheduling them for back-to-back -back appointments with the pediatric physical therapist. By the time my third child came along, I figured it was standard procedure to take a baby of mine for a checkup with the developmental pediatrician. I was shocked to find out that Shiriel was developing typically. As a toddler, she was jealous that her older brother got to go to OT, occupational therapy, and she wondered when she could have a turn, too. From the time my children were little, I have led how-to-talk workshops. Even though Asher had sensory processing disorder, SPD, and Rashi was eventually diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, now known as an autism spectrum disorder, the skills I was teaching were just as useful in raising my two boys as they were for the parents whose kids were neurotypical. Over the years, I connected with other parents of children with SPD and autism, and I led workshops specifically for parents and professionals who live or work with children with special needs. What I learned, both from my participants and from my own experience, is that the core principles of the how-to-talk approach apply whether children are typically developing or different in their various unique ways. All kids want to connect. All kids want to be understood. All kids want a say in what they do and how they do it. The challenge for those of us with differently wired kids is to figure out how to achieve all these noble goals without getting mired in frustration or blaming our kids when they are, well, different. Imagine you're at home alone, reading an engrossing book and enjoying a cup of tea, when a neighbor you hardly know walks in without knocking. She's standing too close, staring straight into your eyes, and she's chatting loudly as she shakes your chair. Hello, how are you? What are you reading? Do you want to play cards? Can you make me a sandwich, please? How would you feel? A little scared, perhaps? How did she get in? Annoyed by the interruption? Confused by the questions? Disturbed by her loud voice? Wanting to get away from her? I'm guessing you're not likely to throw together a grilled cheese sandwich in that moment. This exercise helps me relate to some of what makes daily life such a challenge for kids on the spectrum. 
Kids whose bodies don't process sensory experiences such as sound, light, movement, touch, or taste in a typical way can get overwhelmed by any or all of these. Sometimes even interactions with their own parents can feel like an assault on their senses. It's no wonder they have a harder time feeling close and comfortable with other people. Better to find a place to hide from all those sensory intrusions. This doesn't mean they can't develop strong connections with people, but we may have to work at it. Admittedly, this can feel like an impossible task, especially with a child who appears to be in his own world and who wants to stay there by himself, thank you very much. It's tempting to try to drag that child out of his world and into ours. After all, he's going to have to learn how to get along in a world where people do talk in voices above a whisper or accidentally bump into each other, where kids yell and run around on the playground, where supermarkets have harsh fluorescent lighting and crowded aisles. The problem is, our world feels wrong to him. Too loud or too quiet, too much touching or not enough, too much to look at and too exhausting to make sense of it all. Before we can hope to acknowledge feelings or engage cooperation or solve problems, we need to connect. Tool number one, join them in their world. The next time your child seems to be in her own world, uninterested in relating to you or anyone else, and you have a little extra energy to spare, try getting down on the floor or wherever your child happens to be and joining her in her world. For example, if Angela is lying on the floor in a quiet room, watching her fingers make shadows on the wall, instead of saying, Angela, come here, I'll read you a book, try getting down on her level and adding your own finger shadows. If Peter likes to talk about train schedules, talk about train schedules with him. If Evan is repeatedly banging his lightsaber on the floor, grab a wooden spoon and bang along with him. If your child usually prefers to be alone, you may have already suffered the sting of rejection so often that it's hard to believe you'll have any success with this. People in my groups looked downright skeptical at these suggestions, but they were willing to give them a try. Here are some of their stories. Head in the Tent Aiden would spend all his time in his tent playing on the iPad if we let him. He goes in there and he's in his own little world. He won't look at me, he won't talk or answer a question, and he certainly won't play with me. This past week, when he went in the tent again, I went over very, very quietly, and I tapped on the tent. It's just fabric, so he could barely hear it. I said very quietly, I want to watch you play. I just sat outside the tent and watched for a while. I asked him, What game are you playing? And he answered me, which was surprising. He was playing the bubble game. I said, Oh, can I see? It's a tiny little one-person tent, but he let me stick my head in. I asked if I could play too, and at first he shook his head no. But then he said he would show me how. We ended up passing the iPad back and forth and playing this bubble video game. It's the first time he's ever done anything like that. I always thought he didn't want anyone to be near him, but now I think we've been trying too hard to force him to do what we want 
without playing the way that he likes. Train Connections Henry is very logical. He doesn't respond to silliness or fantasy. He spends a lot of time playing alone with his train set, and he doesn't like to be interrupted. Yesterday, when he went to the train table, I sat down with him and picked up one of the trains. He said, Mama! I said, I want to be this train. No, you can't be that train. That's not your train. So I grabbed one of his toy guitars and said, Is this a train? That's not a train. Well, what do you do with it then? You play it. With your hands or your toes or your knees or your nose. He thought this was hysterical. Say it again. Say it again. I started playing the guitar with my hands and my toes and knees and nose, and then he tried to do it too. And he loved it. Normally, he would have spent all that time alone. Cave Boy Play Peter was learning about caves at preschool, and he became obsessed with the topic. It can get pretty tiresome talking about caves all the time, so I'm always trying to change the subject and get him interested in something else. But this week, I tried joining him in his world, or in this case, in his cave. We talked about his new favorite word, spelunking, the special headlamps that cave explorers wear, and how sometimes they have to slither through tiny cracks in the ground to climb into a cave. I suggested we build a cave in our living room with the couch pillows. At first he was disappointed that we couldn't go to a real cave, but then he got excited about the project. We covered the pillows with blankets to make it dark, and then we climbed in. We had a sweet time together and he was in a really happy mood afterward. Tool number two. Take time to imagine what your child is experiencing. When a child is being difficult, our impulse is to focus on what we want him to do. He has to get those socks on, eat breakfast, take a bath, start therapy. We don't stop to think about how he's feeling. And even if we do, it can be hard to figure out just what the heck those feelings are. Kids on the autism spectrum can be insistent on routines and sameness in a way that completely baffles us. We adults don't fall to pieces when a meeting is rescheduled. We don't refuse to wear socks if our favorite pair is in the laundry. When my own son's behavior is bewildering, it helps me to try to imagine myself in a situation that would bring up the same emotions that he's feeling. Here's an example. My son refused to start physical therapy until the chairs in the waiting area were in the same alternating pattern. Red, yellow, red, yellow. No amount of logic would convince him to leave the chairs as they were. What was the big deal? Can I imagine a situation where I, too, would be bothered by the arrangement of chairs? What if I were leading a workshop? and I arrived to discover the chairs were in rows instead of the usual circular setup. Would I insist that they be returned to the proper arrangement? You bet I would. If the room manager explained to me that it was no big deal and I should just be flexible, would that help? Not at all. I'm not claiming that the arrangement of the chairs in the waiting room 
was as important for my son's physical therapy as the arrangement of the chairs is for my workshop. But we would both have similar feelings that things were not right, and we'd both be similarly upset if we were unable to make things right again. What we'd both want to hear is, Oh, you don't like the chairs this way. They're arranged all wrong. Then, of course, we'd want to return the chairs to their proper places. Understanding that this was how my son felt, I made a point of arriving a few minutes early so we could get the chairs right. Inevitably, though, the waiting area would be missing a chair or people would be sitting in the chairs and we couldn't rearrange them. Tempted as I was to lecture him, Really? You're going to cry because there's an extra yellow chair? Honey, you can't always have everything exactly as you want it. I knew that would only make it worse. Again, I imagined myself in a similar situation. What if the chairs at the workshop were bolted down in their rows? What would help me deal with an uncomfortable situation? This is what I said to Asher. Oh, no! You want a red chair here! That's frustrating, Asher repeated. Fustating! You wish we had a red chair to put here, he replied. Put here, I said, humph. He said, humph. And then he took my hand and walked into therapy. You don't need to run down the hall looking for a red chair or ask the nursing mother or the elderly lady to get up so you can move her chair. There is value to giving a child the experience that he can handle frustration with your sympathy and support. When we demonstrate generosity of spirit by accepting feelings, we help our children become more resilient, and we increase their ability to deal with the inevitable bumps and detours in the road of life. Scratchy Grass Last Saturday was a warm day. Shorts and t-shirt weather at last after our brutal winter. I took Ivan to the park. We sat on the grass to eat a snack, but he wouldn't stay put. He kept popping up and running around me in circles. I told him he needed to sit while he was eating, but he yelled, no! This wasn't like him. I wondered what was going on. Did he suddenly have attention deficit disorder? I tried to imagine what he might be feeling, and that's when I realized the grass was probably bothering his exposed legs. Maybe the grass was tickling him, or maybe it felt like sandpaper. I said, You don't like sitting on the grass. He said, No. I laid my sweater out for him to sit on. Suddenly he was happy to sit and eat the rest of his snack. The sensation of grass on his legs had been too much to bear. I remember thinking, wow, people are different in ways I didn't even know they could be different. Seams of Socks Jack has lots of socks in his drawer, but there are only three pairs that he likes. When I have to get him to school in the morning, it's always a battle if none of his favorites are clean. In the past, I always said things like, don't make such a big deal about a pair of socks, and there's nothing wrong with the other socks. Sometimes I figured he was making a fuss because he didn't want to go to school. I wasn't going to stand for that. When you told me about how sensitive your son's feet were when he was younger, I wondered if maybe my son really can tell the difference between these three pairs of socks and all the rest. 
I bought another package of his favorite socks. And you know what? We didn't have one sock fight all week. That is, until his babysitter came one day and insisted he wear one of the pairs he doesn't like. I snapped at her. Jack can feel the difference between those socks and the ones he likes. You need to listen to him. Then I realized that I was mad at her for doing the same thing I'd been doing for months. I had to apologize. Anyway, now I know my son feels what he feels. But he sure didn't get his sensitive feet from me. Julie's Story Soccer in the Summer I signed Asher up for a week of soccer camp, and it turned out to be one of the hottest weeks of the summer. The temperature was expected to hit 90 degrees. Asher has always refused to wear shorts. He can't stand the feeling of air on his legs, and he always insists on wearing thick cargo pants. So, of course, he wore his pants to soccer camp. I foresaw trouble. The woman in charge of signing kids in was going to insist he wear shorts, which would be reasonable if Asher didn't have such sensitive legs. So I taught him to say, I have hypersensitivity in my lower extremities. Well, when he told her that, she was drop-jawed. She let him sign in without any protest. I felt good about empowering Asher. Now he could let other people know how he's feeling all by himself, instead of needing his mom to interpret for him and protect him. And those were pretty big words for a little kid. Gummed up. My six-year-old son Evan is very sensitive. This is a mixed blessing to say the least. A few weeks ago, he had a bad experience during lunch at school. One of the kids at his table had a pack of wintergreen gum and shared it with the other kids. The smell nauseated Evan so much that he couldn't eat. After that, he got upset whenever he saw someone chewing gum. Even if he saw their mouth moving as if they were chewing gum, he imagined the smell, and he couldn't eat. Last week, it got worse. He would eat a few bites and then give up because he was thinking about gum. I tried telling him to just not think about it, but that made him cry. I started looking into child psychiatrists. After the workshop last week, I spent some time trying to understand what Evan was experiencing. It's not that strange if you really think about it. We're all taught not to discuss certain topics at the dinner table. Why? Because even the thought of something disgusting, like vomit or feces, makes us lose our appetite. For some reason, my brother-in-law has a hard time with that concept. He works at a hospital, and he's infamous for talking about the gross details of his job while we're eating. I started writing a list of ideas to help Evan. Could he substitute a different thought? Could he substitute a different smell? Maybe he could test different spices and find one he likes. Then if he started thinking about gum, he could take a whiff of cinnamon or oregano. At dinner that night, it happened again. Evan couldn't eat. He was crying. I said, ugh, the smell of wintergreen gum is so disgusting to you that the very thought of it makes you lose your appetite. That's a tough problem. It's not easy to eat when you have those thoughts in your head. And it's really hard to control your thoughts. Even grown-ups have lots of trouble doing that. He looked at me with relief and said, 
Yeah. He walked away from the table, then came back as we were finishing the meal, took a few bites, and wandered off again. For the next few meals, I followed the same script. By the end of the week, he was eating normally. Just knowing that I understood what he was going through relieved a lot of his tension. I never even got to try out any of my other ideas. Tool number three. Put into words what kids want to say. It can be hard to figure out what little kids, wired differently or not, want to say. Maybe it's because their brain-to-mouth connection hasn't matured. Mm, uh. Or their tongues and lips aren't yet coordinated. Yuck, an efflent. Or they just don't have the vocabulary to express themselves. Want that. What is it you want, darling? Want dat. 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 Even when we can figure out what they're trying to say, we may not want to give them what they want. It can be tempting to ignore them or act like we don't understand. How to respond in these situations? Let's do a thought experiment. Imagine you're learning a language called Quarben, with difficult pronunciation and complicated grammar, and you're utterly dependent on people who speak only this language. You're very hungry. You try your best to ask for scrambled eggs, quasi-cry, but the only response you get is Fwidjthroik thwarpel, brigazi par klafik, which means, I don't understand you, speak more clearly. Feeling frustrated, you try again, shouting, quasi-cray. Your host responds in quarben, saying, I can't hear you when you shout. How long will it be before you give up or cry or throw a shoe at your host? Even if my host can't figure out exactly what I want, I would feel better if she said, you want something. You need it right away. Ah, I've communicated at least part of my message. She's getting it. I'll keep trying. Like us, children who have difficulty communicating still want to express themselves and be understood. We can help by putting into words what they want to say as best we can. For early talkers, this may mean picking out the few words we do understand. Oh, an elephant. You're saying elephant. For more advanced talkers, we can expand on their words and acknowledge how they're feeling. When the child says, No, Daddy, go, we can say, You don't want Daddy to go. You miss Daddy. You wish Daddy could stay home. Parents and teachers in my workshop were surprised to discover that putting children's feelings and desires into words is helpful, even when we can't give them what they want. When kids feel understood, they also feel more calm, connected, and able to tolerate frustration. Trapped in the Kitchen My older son was playing with a friend in the backyard. Jacob, who is nonverbal, was with me in the kitchen when he noticed his big brother outside. He started banging on the door, and it was clear he wanted to go outside, too. Normally, I would have been afraid to acknowledge that he wanted to go out because I knew I couldn't watch him out there at that moment. I was in the middle of making dinner. But this time, I tried putting into words what I thought he wanted. You see Andy and Max playing outside. 
You want to go outside, too. I wish I could take you outside, but I'm making macaroni and cheese for dinner. You can help me make dinner, and then after we eat, I'll take you outside. To my amazement, he came back into the kitchen and started playing with the pots and pans. I always thought if you acknowledge what a child wants, you have to give it to him or he'll have a fit. This was a real eye-opener for me. Repeat after me. Elliot's speech is still pretty hard to understand. We've had a lot of conversations where he says something incomprehensible, and I say, what did you say? Say it again. He tries again, and I still can't make sense of most of it. Slow down, Elliot. Say it clearly. I can't understand you. The next thing you know, he's screaming his head off. I started trying to let him know the words I do understand by repeating everything I could figure out. So if he says, mumble, 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 ball, mumble, I say, you said something about a ball. He'll try again, and I'll catch another word, so I repeat that, too. Oh, you said a green ball. Now, whenever he says anything, he waits patiently for me to repeat back his words. Dinner Disappointment My son Will is four, and he's a screamer. He often has a fit when he doesn't like what's for dinner. Last night we were having chicken, and he pointed at the plate and started screaming. Normally I'd get angry and tell him to be quiet, but this time I said, Oh no, you're upset. You wanted mac and cheese and you got chicken. Mac and cheese. You really wanted mac and cheese. I pounded on the table. He pounded along with me. Mac and cheese, mac and cheese. I sang, oh, mac and cheese, I wish you grew on trees. I love you more than peas. Without you, my heart will freeze. I want to smear you on my knees. I was emoting with him, hamming it up. The freakout was over. He wasn't screaming anymore. We looked at the food on the table. He decided he'd have some of the potato with cheese on top and some of the carrot sticks. After he polished off those, he ate a little chicken. I didn't say a thing. Written record. Sometimes Peter gets so upset he has trouble speaking. It can take him a long time to get the words out. It happened last week after he came home from school. He was crying and gasping for breath between words. I really wanted to scream at him, what happened? Just tell me. Of course, that would only make him more upset and slow him down even more. I decided to try writing down everything he was saying mostly to give myself something to do. But it also helped him calm down faster. I literally wrote down every word he said. The teacher said the fastest person to clean up would win a prize. But she made me stop to give her the science worksheet. It's not fair. She made me 
lose. He made me read it back to him several times as he was telling the story and listened with great satisfaction. Crisis over. Rain, rain, go away. I teach kindergarten. We couldn't go outside for recess as usual because it was raining. And if you don't live in California, you may not realize what a rare event that was. Johnny normally has a fit when the schedule changes. He throws himself on the floor or bangs on the window. He said, I want outside. I said, I know, you really like to go out for recess. You don't like being inside. I want outside. I bet you wish the rain would stop. Outside. We were stuck, so I said, let's go outside to see if it's still raining. We went outside and stood in the rain. I shook my fist at the sky and said, you rain, you took away Johnny's recess. Then I turned to Johnny and said, it's still raining. Let's go inside and play bowling. He wasn't happy about it, but he was much calmer than usual. He went inside and he got involved in bowling. After Hours Agony when Dustin lies down to go to sleep, he can get sensory overload. Without the distraction of being in motion, discomforts crowd in on him. Last night, he was having an especially hard time. He complained about the sheet rubbing against his feet. He had an uncomfortable feeling in his throat when he swallowed. His fingertips had an unpleasant tingling because I trimmed his nails earlier in the day. He brushed his teeth five times to get rid of a bad taste in his mouth. We did our regular routine of me karate chopping his back, scratching his back, lightly tickling his back. He was screaming and agitated. I was at a loss for how to help him feel better. Dustin asked me, can I say a bad word? I said, sure, you say as many bad words as you want. He started yelling. I asked, can I yell with you? He looked surprised, but he nodded. I yelled with him, cursed the awful feelings he was feeling in his body, yelled that it isn't fair, it just isn't fair. These are things he has said to me in the past. And then the magic happened. I saw it in his face. He sobbed with relief, hugged me as hard as he could and said, I love you so much, mommy. We held each other and cried. That was the turning point. A few minutes later, he was able to drift off to sleep.